0: Mark 3, starting in verse 20 to the end of the chapter. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub. And and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, we have come, we have confessed our sin, we have heard your promises, now apply your word to our hearts and minds, so we may be able to do your will to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You may be seated. My sermon title this morning, Are We the Bad Guys?, comes from a 2006 British comedy sketch. If you're younger than me, you might know it. Alex is smiling because I think he does know it this way. From the reaction image online with the same quote, are we the bad guys? The image and the sketch depict two men depicted as SS Nazi commanders discussing the war effort. When one of them looks at the other and asks, Hans, have you noticed something? We have skulls on our caps. And as the sketch continues... He keeps pointing out things that are unsettling him until he finally asks, Hans, are we the bad guys? Now, the humor of the sketch to kill the joke for you is these men realizing what is exceedingly obvious to us. That they, yes, in fact, were the bad guys. And it works because everyone wonders why. Why didn't anyone in actual history in the Nazi army and the SS realize it. But that's just the thing, isn't it? The villain never thinks they're the bad guy. Kids know this. Kids, you can think of your favorite villain from a story. They think they're right. Everyone doing something wrong thinks they have a really good reason for it. Today, anti-hero stories are popular. That make us want to root for the bad guy because maybe he isn't that bad or maybe there's an even worse bad guy or stories like the musical wicked tell retell the common wizard of oz story and it's told from the perspective of a villain and we learn how likable understandable and sympathetic the wicked witch of the west really is deep down have you ever asked Could I be the bad guy here? When you think of issues that you have in your life or with others, could we ourselves be the main problem? Is it possible the problems of my marriage and family or that I have where I work are mostly my fault? Could I be the one finding ways to justify my own sin? Because if so we are setting ourselves up against Christ's purpose. This is, of course, not how any of us would explain it. But remember, the bad guy always thinks they're justified. Our text this morning describes two groups of people who could have never imagined they would have been against God and Israel's Savior. And Jesus draws a line in the sand to make it clear who is with him and who is not. And this revelation what Jesus says should give hope to every sinner and give all of us a warning we need to hear. Because Jesus Christ is the strong Savior who's come to bind the strong man Satan. And so we must trust him, give up our will, lest we risk opposing him ourselves. Now our story this morning comes right on the heels of Christ choosing the twelve apostles. You can turn a page back in your Bible. Maybe you remember from last week. That action by Jesus was already radical enough. Why wouldn't Jesus just rely on his inner circle to be his family? If Jesus is Israel's Messiah, why wouldn't he commission the priests to carry out his work? But Jesus, choosing 12 uneducated, unrelated apostles, shows his mission is transcending family ties and even their religious history up to that point. He is replacing, not trying to fix, the corrupt religious establishment. Because evidently not everything that claims God's name or to be Christian truly is. It's interesting in the early verses, in verse 21, the word family doesn't appear in the Greek text. That isn't revealed until the second half of the verses. Verse 21 says only that his own came to seize him. Now, the tension is heightened later when it's realized and revealed to be his brothers and his mother. But this word seize is very interesting. It's the word that's going to be used when Jesus is arrested before his crucifixion. His family is coming to take control of him. Things are obviously out of control now. He's neglecting rest, eating, being with his own family, and worse, He's certainly taken things too far with these debates with the religious leaders. So they, for his own good, need to take Jesus home. And then we find one of the gospel's favorite storytelling techniques. There's a very technical term in the commentaries for it called a story sandwich. The writer begins one story, in the middle says, now for something completely different, tells another story, and then comes back to finish the original story. Now, this morning, the bread of our story sandwich are Jesus' family trying to find him. And the meat is his conflict with the scribes from Jerusalem. Now, the key to understanding the story sandwich is that the center holds the meaning of both stories. So Jesus is not only misunderstood by his family, but opposed by the scribes of Jerusalem. Again, Jesus has just finished repeated conflicts with the scribes and Pharisees. And someone has decided to call the professional theologians from Jerusalem. They're coming down from the center of religion. They're scribes. They're professionally trained. Because, you see, Jesus has created a bit of a crisis for them. Someone outside their system is becoming the center of religious attention. And worse for them, he's opposing them. And maybe this problem wouldn't be huge, except that he keeps doing miracles. And so they call the theologians. And the scribes come down to offer a great theological explanation for why Jesus has power over demons. They say, Ah, oh, we know. We know why he can control demons, because he's possessed by the prince of all demons. So they all have to listen to him. Now in verse 23, Jesus decides to enter into the theological debate with them. He uses a few parables working kind of like a thought experiment. First, he asks, If my work is completely opposed to Satan, how can I be empowered by him? Do you see that in verses 23 through 25? But he takes the point further. I want to make sure it's clear because he's speaking in parables. He says, even if you're right, and by Satan I'm destroying Satan, that means God is bringing Satan's reign to end through me. Meaning, my teaching that the kingdom of God is arriving is true. You see, their logic is self-refuting. And Jesus draws three conclusions from them from these parables. First, first, and most obviously, Jesus cannot be in collusion with Satan. Two, if Jesus is destroying Satan's work, he is one who is more powerful than Satan. And three, if you're opposed to Jesus, then what side do you think you're on? Hmm. So we learn nothing of their reaction, how they respond. We cut back to Jesus' family standing outside of the house, which is of course ironic Because normally, families are on the inside, and crowds, they're on the outside. But Jesus explains this reveals who's truly his own. Not even his family has the right to be on the inside with him, but only those who do God's will by listening to him. So our sandwiches stories revolve around who is really with Jesus. So, this morning we are going to discuss who isn't with Jesus, necessarily, who is with Jesus, and what Jesus has to do to save us. First, our story makes clear, no one should assume they are naturally with Jesus. If his own family and the religious elite aren't necessarily with him, then no one is. Jesus' cold response to his family would have been shocking to ancient people. This was no individualistic time. Family was the basis of all social and economic identity. And being cast off from your family was as being as good as dead. Christ's family, after all, at least appears to have good intentions. They are coming to take control of Jesus because they thought they knew what was best for him. They knew what really needed to be done. But by doing so, even with the best of intentions... They have set themselves up against Christ's agenda. They are trying to conform Jesus to what they want. And Christians can do the same thing. Your good intentions don't make you close to Jesus. But of course, Jesus' family aren't the only ones on the outside looking in. The respected religious leaders have gone a step further. They've made Jesus their enemy. And this is striking because these are the men who have structured their lives around religion. They're highly educated. Religion and the scriptures are the most important thing to them. But when they arrived, they came to oppose, not follow Jesus. And again, this isn't out of ignorance either. They admit, we know he has done undisputed miracles. They knew Jesus cast out demons. They knew he healed And so apparently, even seeing miracles is no guarantee of faith. So why would they oppose him then? Because he is speaking against them and their agenda. The religious leaders are sure Jesus is wrong because they are disagreeing with him. He has become their enemy by speaking the truth. It's hard to be corrected, isn't it? Kids, is it hard to be corrected? It's not easy when your mom or dad tells you you're wrong. Adults, it's hard to be corrected, isn't it? We argue, we justify ourselves, we blame others. Today, many won't consider Christianity because it would require me to change my lifestyle or my beliefs. Most of us have the attitude of the scribes. Either I get to define Jesus, and he does what I want, or I want nothing to do with him. And we even justify it. After all, my relationship to Jesus is personal to me. But if Jesus' family and the religious Jews aren't naturally on Jesus' side, then neither are we. No matter if you grew up in a church, you think you have the right theology. You have Christian parents, or if you once prayed a prayer to accept Jesus in your heart, or had an emotional experience, or many, perhaps none of these apply to you if you're unchurched or de-churched, but you might think you're right with God because, after all, you're a pretty good person. This is what we call the Wisconsin answer. We are polite. We are better at least than most people. I mow my neighbor's lawn when they're out of town. I hold doors for strangers. I say sorry if I get within five feet of anyone. I'll pay for my kids' college if I can. But none of these things bring anyone in Wisconsin any closer to Jesus either. So what does? First, look at who Jesus will come close to. Who will Jesus forgive? Look at verse 28. Who will Jesus forgive? The answer? All sin. All All kinds of sinners. Right. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven of the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Jesus says no matter how bad or how far from him you think you are, he has forgiven worse. This is the good news that brings healing no matter what you've done. Jesus will forgive you because he has forgiven worse. Think about forgiveness in the Gospel of Mark. Think about the forgiveness Jesus offers Peter throughout the Gospel. Peter is going to spend the majority of the story misunderstanding and disagreeing with Jesus. Do you ever feel like you don't know the Bible or theology very well? Well, Jesus forgave Peter and will forgive you. Jesus even rebuked Peter so harshly, he said, what you have just done is satanic. Peter, during Jesus' trial, under pressure, denies Christ and curses him three times. Have you fragrantly disobeyed Jesus? Have you let him down? Jesus forgave Peter and will forgive you. Whatever sin you have, Whatever you have done, whatever is in your past, Jesus can forgive. All sinners can be with Jesus. But there's something else our text says about who is with Jesus. They are sinners. Jesus will forgive them. But according to verse 35, they are also those who do the will of God. These are the ones Jesus calls family. And this gives us a great goal. Communion with Jesus Christ in all of our lives. It's easy for many of us born so long, so far from where Jesus lived, to think we're really far from Jesus. What a privilege it would have been to see him, to be in his family, to be one of these disciples there that day. However, this text tells us who is really close to Jesus, how you can be his brother or his sister. You can share the deepest bond with Jesus By doing his will. Every area of your life where you seek God's will by listening to Jesus, you are becoming closer to him. And if we make being with Jesus this way our goal, it can change the focus of our lives. Because that means you can be with Jesus while you work, while you parent, while you suffer, while you succeed or fail, not just while you're at church. Because you can seek to be conforming your life and the world around Jesus. Are you trying to resist some sin? Jesus is with you. Are you seeking to discipline your children in a godly way? Jesus is with you. Are you trying to pray? Jesus is with you. Do you read his word and try and respond with faith and repentance? Jesus is with you. And you are his brother or his sister. This is the hope for every single person here. You are one act of obedience away from being closer to Jesus. This isn't legalism. This is friendship. The goal isn't keeping the rules, but drawing near to Jesus. And he says we do this by listening and obeying his word. So, what command in God's word have you put off obeying? Because you are one act of repentance away from being closer and having more communion with Jesus. You can turn that area of sin into an area of communion with Christ. And the center of our story, Sam, which tells us why it ultimately matters who is with Jesus. Because Jesus is the Lord, the one coming to rescue creation from Satan. His conflict here clarifies something very important for us. What kind of rescue operation is Jesus running? He's running one on a grander scale than anyone had ever imagined. Most ancient Jews, if they were asked, what's wrong with the world today? Their answer would have been the Roman Empire. They probably did think about the Roman Empire every day. They longed for a Messiah who would break them free of the Roman Empire. Others, like the Pharisees, thought about the immorality of Israel itself. And they thought, maybe we can fix it with the right rules. And if we go by how the crowds responded to Jesus, the average person was looking for a Messiah who could help them with their physical needs and their physical sickness. These were all real problems, but were only symptoms of the true problem. Because Jesus came to bring what made the world such a bad place in the first place. All evil, all rebellion, led by Satan. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 summarize the good news this way. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is here to free all the captives. Not just psychologically, economically, politically, but cosmically. Jesus had to bind Satan to save you. Because in whatever ways, big or small, you've sinned, you've made yourself a willing slave to darkness. And Jesus is coming to uproot evil where it is its deepest, which is in the human heart. As Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn is famous for saying, The line separating good and evil passes not between states or classes or even political parties, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. We need a Savior who's stronger than all evil, who can uproot Satan's rule there. And Jesus has shown us he is stronger than Satan. Look at all the demons he casts out. So we must trust Jesus to rescue us because he has broken Satan's hold and he can redeem your mind, your attitude, actions, and emotions. But I must warn you, this rescue operation may not go smoothly in your life. This really hit me when I was doing ministry among Muslims. I would spend hours every day trying to convince them to read the Bible, that Jesus was God, that God was the Trinity. I would argue, we would drink tea day after day, rinse and repeat. And one day it hit me like a ton of bricks. If by God's grace I succeeded and convinced any of my Muslim friends of any of these things, I was actually doing them no favor. If they trusted Christ, especially if they were baptized, their life was going to be disrupted by a lot of chaos. They would face rejection from their family and certainly their friends. They would be liable to lose their job and future opportunities. They would face some form of persecution and even risk violent persecution. And so I had to ask myself, is it worth it? Should I really pray for this for them? And if trusting Jesus is the path to life and peace, Why would it look like chaos and loss? And the answer is almost too obvious. The reason it would look like chaos is because the status quo of the world is darkness. So freeing the captives, overturning darkness will look like chaos. For all of us, trusting Jesus will disrupt the sins you've made compromises with. It could disrupt your relationships or plans. But the truth is, even for all my Muslim friends, it's worth it. Because being Jesus' brother or sister or mother is a place of honor beyond all imagination. This is why it matters who is with Jesus. This isn't like choosing a favorite sports team or rooting for your alma mater It's why we can't assume we're with him and why we must make our goal in every area of life to be communion with him. Because if you aren't with him, whose side do you think you're on? This is why we also must hear Jesus' warning in verses 29 and 30. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The truth is there is one kind of sin that will not be forgiven. Now, many Christians with very sensitive consciences worry this verse might apply to them for one reason or another. But, of course, this verse is describing the sin of the scribes. They see Jesus, they know what he's doing, and they reject him and call it evil. So yes, there is a sin that will never be forgiven, But those worried about committing it are probably the least likely to commit it. Because they are worried that, oh no, what if I'm opposing Jesus? Which, as you can see, is the opposite of this attitude. Because remember, villains don't ever wonder if they're the bad guys. So, does that mean there's no warning for us? You're at church, you're obviously attracted to Christ in some way. I do think there is still a reality check for you. Because anyone who continually rejects the grace of God available through Jesus, while not beyond God's mercy, is going to find it more and more difficult to repent and seek that grace. If we stubbornly say, I don't care what the Bible says, or keep putting off obedience, we move further from Christ. If we've stopped reading the Bible as something that is going to continually call me to repentance, we are missing, whatever we're doing in our Bible study, we are missing the voice of the shepherd. Perhaps I should put it like this. The reality check is this. Am I correctable by the word of God? Or, like the scribes, am I an expert in all the ways... I'm an expert in the Bible in all ways except for how they apply to me. The above attitudes, like the eternal sin, are uncorrectable and unrepentant. This is why the scribes will not be forgiven, because they have cut themselves off off from the only source of salvation possible. They are repulsed by the grace that would save them. To close, I want to share an example of this sin. This eternal sin from the short story, The Grand Inquisitor, from the Russian novel, The Brothers Karamazov. It's one of the most well-known stories in Russian literature. It was new to my wife, so I'm assuming it's going to be new to many of you. The story imagines Christ returning in human form to a small town in Spain during the Spanish Inquisition. which you may know was a very dark time in history. Torture and burning at the stake were being used to combat enemies of the institutional church. And Jesus shows up, and all the people recognize him. It doesn't say how, but they're all drawn to him. And he begins with love to heal the sick, open the eyes of the blind. And when he interrupts a funeral headed into the cathedral by raising a girl from the dead, he is stopped and arrested by the head of the church. The rest of the story is about the Grand Inquisitor, that church leader's visit to Christ that night. The rest of the story is really a monologue of the Inquisitor explaining to him why he had to arrest him and stop him from doing any more miracles. In a few short pages, I think this short story completes and creates one of the most vile and compelling villains in literature history. The church leader tells Jesus, whose name he refuses to utter in the story, he can't let him do any more miracles because they would hinder the work of the church. The Inquisitor knows he's at odds with Christ. And he's very upset Jesus decided to show up because he's going to mess up their perfectly good religion. Next, he tells them, that in the morning he plans to condemn Jesus as a heretic. Let me quote his words to you. Do you know what will be tomorrow? I know who you are, and care not whether it is really you or just a resemblance, but tomorrow. Tomorrow I will condemn you and burn you at the stake as the worst of heretics. And the very people who have kissed your feet today, tomorrow, from the faintest sign of me, will rush to heap embers on your fire. For if anyone has ever deserved this fire, it's you. It's chilling, isn't it? Hearing him ready to condemn Jesus as a heretic. But it's because he knows Jesus won't conform to the religion that's given him his power. And he goes on to explain that the religion Jesus left them was so lousy they've had to spend hundreds of years fixing it. And he won't let him ruin it now. And finally, the Grand Inquisitor reveals why none of this bothers him. Why doesn't it bother him that he's opposing Christ? That he doesn't desire to have any sense of Christ's religion. He tells the Son of God, I want not thy love, for I love thee not. Christ does not speak at any point in the story. At the end, the Inquisitor demands he answer his question. But Christ's only response is to kiss the Grand Inquisitor, who, shocked, frees him, but commands him to never return, repulsed by him. Literature professors debate the ending of the story and what it means. But clearly, the Grand Inquisitor is repulsed by the only love that could save him. He thinks Jesus is the villain and his love is the thing the church no longer needs. Could we be repulsed by the way Jesus shows love? Because it means we're a sinner and it means we have to repent. Would we demand on our own will and our own beliefs or give it up for Christ? Because what the story shows us is you can't have your own way and keep control and have Christ's love. Because our sinful hearts and our stubborn self-will are what need his redeeming love the most. So no matter if we do this out of good intentions or not, we must choose Christ's love and forgiveness or our own self-directed lives and find ourselves on the side of the Grand Inquisitor. So that's the question today. Could you be the bad guy? And if so, which side will you be on? Because like Jesus' kiss in the story to the Grand Inquisitor, Jesus can forgive any sinner and make any bad guy his friend. And that is good news for villains like us. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise Jesus Christ, our champion over Satan and evil. We pray you break his authority and sin that holds on in our life. We pray we, like the meek, will be with Jesus by doing God's will and receive the blessing of being called part of the family of Jesus. Amen.